Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. Were you not ready? No. You weren't ready for the I was intro. clearing my throat, and I then all said, of a sudden you jump right in after I take a breath. I said, and here we go. You, that you doesn't interp- mean oh jack. Oh, goodness. This is, just, this is just a disaster. This is what happens when we haven't recorded for two weeks. Yeah, you're not wrong. Things uh, fall apart. This is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year, and we talk about what we learned along the way. Um, if you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in with us today, we are on day 169. For all you sports enthusiasts, I literally just set Evan up with a beautiful set, and he didn't say anything about anything. Oh, I was going to do it after we do the intro pieces. But the intro piece already fell apart. Uh, and then I set you up, bro. Fine, fine, fine. Here's a softball, a soft pitch. Listeners, one last thing. If you want to ask us questions, you can email in to info at grove.church or use our social no medias, our Facebooks, our Instagrams. Uh, yes, as Aaron alluded the to. The wheels are falling off. As Aaron alluded to, we haven't recorded in a few weeks. Uh, so last week we recorded two podcast episodes. By the grace of God. Yep. And the plan was we're going to record two for three weeks in a row. And then that way when... Uh, our, me and Ashley's baby comes that will have episode, episodes in the bank. I can take paternity leave. We have iHeart coming up, so we're all good there. Uh, and then lo and behold, the day after we record, uh, Joel decides he's going to be, you know, he's going to be a little punctual, a little a little over-punctual and just show up three he weeks He was early. just eager to meet you. Apparently. So. If you don't know who Joel is, Joel is Evan's son. It's true. Joel Thomas Westerfield, born June 2nd, 2023. Six, six pounds, three ounces, three ounces. Yeah, so just a little guy. Oh, yeah. He was he was technically premature by like two days or something, but by, oh. by by the way they define it. So it's a whole it's a whole thing. But yeah, so mother and mother and baby both doing well. Uh, it's it's fun. It's fun being a dad. But yeah, definitely took us by <laughs> took us by surprise. Surprise. So, yeah, we recorded. Here. We recorded Thursday, and then Friday morning I woke up uh, to Ashley saying, "Hey, I think my water broke," and then we're like. Okay, <laughs> and then and then we went, and then it was just yeah. Sure enough, so we're we're a little bit later now, but we d- we didn't want to so crazy. We didn't want to deprive you. I'm technically on vacation this week, but I d- we didn't want to deprive you of a podcast episode. Plus, I, I don't know. I really enjoy doing this, and it's nice to get out of the house. You know, we've been we were in the hospital, <laughs> we were in the house. You know, it's nice to get away for a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, we're gonna do that today, uh, and we're gonna continue on with our discussion of. I'm honestly we're doing a bunch of kings this week with some prophets mixed in, some some of the minor prophets. So, uh, this week. We are going to start off uh, by being introduced to the first queen regnant of Judah. Um, I put, for, I'm pretty sure she's the only one that actually, by queen regnant, I mean like she's a queen that reigns, like not like, there's a, obviously a bunch of queens of Judah. Uh, there's more queens of Judah than there are kings of Judah because all of them have a bajillion wives. So, but she is the, <laughs> she's the first one uh, that is that reigns over Judah. Her name is Athaliah. Uh, when her son, Ahaziah, who we talked about last week, dies, uh, she thinks to herself, you know what would be a good idea? Um, what if I became queen and murdered all of his brothers? Uh, and I say his brothers and not her children, because it doesn't seem like she's murdering her own children there. It seems like, again, all the kings of Judah have a bajillion wives, so she's probably murdering the sons of other women. So, but yeah, she she does that. Uh, one one makes it away, uh, and a- Ahaziah's sister, Jehoshaba, uh, or Jehoshabeth, depending on... Uh, which, we'll just call her Beth for short. Yeah, depending on whether you're reading Kings or Chronicles, hides Joash away. So Joash is the one son of King Ahaziah who escapes, and Athaliah, uh, you know, she, she takes the throne. 
I'm going to go ahead, listener, I'm sure you're thinking, and uh, this isn't going to be a stretch, uh, someone who just completely murders everyone on their way to the throne, probably not a very good ruler. Uh, you're correct. You're, you're so absolutely, true. Athaliah is, uh, I was thinking, I was looking at the tier list the other day. I feel like we need to drop some into the worst category. And I think this is spoilers for the end. I think Athaliah is a prime candidate for someone who belongs in the... Uh, the worst category of the kings. But are, you, are you saying we should drop some that we've ranked already into yeah. the worst category? And we don't. I think we'll do a big retrospective at the end For where sure. we can adjust a little bit. But I feel like you know we've had a lot of bad kings, and I feel like some of them haven't gotten their due. Some of yeah. them maybe deserve to be in the worst. Well, let's let's be honest. There are some coming today yes, that will fit that category. That is pretty easily. Anyways. All right, well, when we go over to the Chronicles passage, we find out that Jehoshabeth is the wife of Je- Jehoiada, Jeho- oh my gosh, Jehoiada the priest. Uh, and so that gives us a little bit of added context as to why she's doing what she's doing. So she's she's a, she fears God. She's a Yahweh-fearing person. Uh, and then we go back to Kings. It's just kind of a less detailed version of the Chronicles passage there. Uh, and then going into Chronicles. So Chronicles gives us a lot of the details mm-hmm. of of this story, but also the reign of Joash, of Joash of Judah. Spoilers, there's a Joash of Israel as well. We might have talked about him last week. It's all... It's all blurring together. Can I just be honest with you? It's, it's that, blurring together. Yeah, it's that. And then combined with, um, you know, my son was up from 11 to 4.30 last night. So that was... So I'm, I, I I might say some heresy today. Forgive <laughs> me, Aaron. Just call me out on it. I, I, you know, my mind's... If, if the podcast just cuts off, you know why now. Yeah, my mind is not as sharp as I like it to be for this. Um, so anyways, after six years, Jehoiada uh, reveals, and this remember this is the priest that uh, helped keep Joash safe, reveals the young prince to the captains of the guard, uh, the Levite temple guards. And here's the thing, right? Remember back in Numbers, there's this whole thing where there's a section of Levites and their whole job is we're going to guard the tabernacle and then the temple. We don't see them in action super often. Uh, this is one of the types where this is one of the times we get to see them in action, where Je- Jehoiada calls on them, and they're like, "Absolutely!" So he's going to anoint Joash king, and the Levite guards. Their job is to protect uh, protect the temple while this is happening, which they which they do a great job of. Uh, Jehoiada also gives them the sp- the spears and shields of David. So he's kind of letting him know, like, this is an Im- what you're doing right now. This is an important thing. Do not fail. Uh, and so when we jump over to Kings, we see that Athaliah is pretty peeved by this turn of events. Um, I say understandably, not because she's in the right, but I mean, yeah, if you're the queen and they're anointing a king behind your back, you're going to be a little mad about that. Uh, she charges into the temple and she tears her clothes and she shouts, treason, this is treason. Uh, and Jehoiada is just like, okay, guards, uh, put her to death. Um, however, he tells them to take her outside since he doesn't want to execute anyone inside of the temple. Looking at you, Solomon. Looking, looking at <laughs> you. Uh, we go into the Chronicles passage. There's no significant differences there. Back to Kings. After this, Jehoiada renews the covenant between Yahweh and his people. And we are told that Jehoash is going under a fancy new name here. Uh, Jeho- Jehoash and Joash are the same. Not to be confused with the Joash slash Jehoash of Israel and the Joash slash Jehoash of Judah. But those are both one person. <laughs> oh my gosh, the kings are confusing sometimes. Uh, and Jehoash was seven years old when he took the throne. Uh, the Chronicles passage there is kind of pretty much the same. You're, that's going to be a theme today. A lot, the lo- a lot of the Chronicles and Kings passages are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And then where there's a Chronicles passage that's longer, it's usually because something really bad happened. That the it's king, so true. That the sad. King's passage, that the Kings didn't want to... They didn't, didn't want to cover that. Exactly. Let me just tell you about the King. Let me tell you, not tell you about his life. Well, it's like when you... Well, we'll talk about it here in a little bit, but... 
Uh, so, okay. So going to Kings, we get a description of the reign of Jehoash, who it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. You know, he wasn't perfect, but he did yeah. a good job. And if all you read was Kings, you'd be like, oh yeah. He's a good king. Joash. Awesome. Great job, bro. Um, the high places stay in place, but he serves the Lord. Uh, he gets some repairs going on the temple. His heart's in the right place, yeah. but uh, you know, he doesn't seem to do the best job. It ends up being a pretty modest remodel, but you know, He's trying. Yeah. I'm hearing some clapping happening right now. Yep. So that's the King's passage. It's 16 verses. And then we jump over to Chronicles and hey, remember that part about how Jehoash did a pretty good job? Well, maybe not as great. Wait, what? As we thought it was. Clapping's starting to fade now. Oh my gosh. And so we get the whole thing going here. Uh, Jehoiada makes a covenant before his people. And then here's the thing. (laughs) Jehoash just... He, he when after Jehoiada dies, he's just like, you know what? I don't I don't need to serve God anymore. Uh, he really just falls down into the yeah, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. He just doesn't do a very good job. Uh, Jehoiada dies and then uh, Jehoash is confronted by Jehoiada's son and who is also a priest whose name is Zechariah uh, and Jehoiada Jehoash, I'm getting all the names mixed up. He doesn't like being confronted. So he yeah. puts him to death and this is a whole big thing, not a good deal. And he starts worshiping other idols. So it, it seems like Jehoiada, the priest, was kind of the one keeping Joash reigned in. And then once he died, it was just like, you know, he decided to sow his wild oats, if you will. Um, and by sow his wild oats, I mean worshiping idols and murdering priests, like, you know, like some of the other kings of Judah had done. So unbelievable, uh, not a good deal. We cut back to Kings for a moment to see that God had began to take away some of the territory of the Northern kingdom and that Jehu died. So we just get Jehu just dies in a footnote there Sad. and that the borders of Northern Israel are starting to shrink. Uh, they won't shrink forever. We'll see another King come up here momentarily. That kind of brings it back. Uh, and then we find out that Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu is now the King of Israel. He's a terrible King. <laughs> <laughs> like Jehu. This is not mince words. He's terrible. Yeah. Jehu might be the best King in Israel, which admittedly is a low bar, but you know, he did it. But he's the top. He's the cream of the crop. Yeah. He did a, he did an okay job. And if you're grading on a curve, he did an amazing job when it comes to the kings of Israel. If you remove Judah from the equation, <laughs> he's probably the best king. Oh, man. Uh, but yeah, Jeho- Jehoahaz, not even close. Uh, he leads the people away from Yahweh worship once again. He does cry out to God for help and is delivered. So, you know, there's that Yay. at least. Yeah, not great. Uh, jumping back into Judah, we see the Syrian army. So the Syrian army, I, I should have I should have said this. The Syrian army is kind of the one that is attacking Northern Israel. Syria is like the big rival of Israel. And when I say Israel, I mean the Northern kingdom of Israel until mm. Assyria comes along. But before that, Syria is the big deal. Um, and I never, I never caught this before because it's kind of just a foot, a quick footnote and you miss it. But Syria actually makes it all the way through Northern Israel into Jerusalem and they sack Jerusalem. So yep. S- Syria is the first nation or the first army. Um, to actually overtake Jerusalem in this way. So they don't conquer Judah, like they're not, and they don't conquer Israel technically yeah. either, but they they do get through. It's kind of like how Rome was sacked a, a bajillion times before it actually fell. Jerusalem had been sacked a couple of times as well before it finally falls to Babylon. Um, I shouldn't say a couple of times. I think Syria might be the only army that actually sacks Jerusalem because Sennacherib of Assyria makes it to Jerusalem, but I don't think, anyway, we'll get there eventually, listeners. Sorry, I'm just thinking out loud now. So uh, Joash defends the city. He is left wounded and men uh, decide to assassinate him in his bed uh, as a response to the murder of Zechariah. So a real bummer ending for a, king, so for a king that started out pretty well. He ends up being assassinated by, by his own men. That uh, cliff came quickly. Let's just say that. Yeah. He kind of had a, 
he had a Josiah trajectory and then just really fell off a cliff. And if you don't know who Josiah is, we'll get to him later. But spoiler alerts, he's one of the great kings. Like Josiah is awesome. Uh, Jumping back to Israel, we find out that Elisha is on his deathbed. Uh, Joash, the king of Israel, not to be confused with Joash, the king of (laughs) Judah, uh, comes Uh, to him. See, now you're confusing me. I know. It's just, it's terrible. And if you remember the last time we had a podcast recorded, there was a lot of confusion at the end as well. So let's just say we're not perfect scholars. (laughs) Here's what what I'm saying. There was a, and I, I do think this is what happened. The fact that the houses of Israel and Judah joined just makes it confusing for everyone because yep. it's Ahab's daughters marry into a bunch of the Judean kings. And so the names are all the same because they're all naming their kids the same thing. It's like, come on, guys. At least like, you know, I don't know, man. At least like, you know, when you're, if you like the French and English monarchies at, or the British monarchies, at, at least those names are different, right? Like one is all Louis and then the other one is like Henry's and George's and it's stuff true. like that. But no, the kings of Israel and Judah, they just like to intermix a bunch. Uh, and so We're one people, bro. I know. So Joash goes back to uh, Elisha for one last prophecy. Elisha tells him that God will give Israel victory over Syria. This is the famous one where he has him uh, shoot an arrow and it's the Lord's arrow of victory. Elisha then dies, uh, but he has one more miracle left in him, apparently. So, And also there's some cool covenant stuff. So you'll notice I'll, I'll read past the miracle just because I think this other thing is cool too. Uh, so it says, and this is 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 through 23. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. That's pretty cool. I like to imagine, I I shouldn't say I like to imagine, but it would be really funny if like he comes back to life and then is just immediately killed by the Moabite raiders that are are raiding through. But I like to think he made it out. I like to think he ran away. So there you go. Uh, It's just sad. It says, uh, now Hazael, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, uh, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them nor cast them from his presence until now. Uh, So A, when you see that until now portion, that gives you a hint of when this was written because, uh, you know, spoiler alerts in a few generations, they are going to be cast away. Um, But I do think it was interesting that this is the first time we see God refer to a different covenant in the context of the kings, right? So in the context of the Judean kings, it's always, I'm not going to rip away the crown from you because of the covenant I made with David. Mm -hmm. This is actually... God referencing the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he's not ready yet to just throw away all these tribes of Israel. Um, He will get there because they're just a bunch of morons that apparently just can't (laughs) worship the one true God. Um, But I did think it was cool to see that God is upholding. He's not just thinking of the Davidic covenant when it comes to the, the lines of the kings. He's thinking of the first covenant that he makes with specifically the people of Israel, which would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So cool things there. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we see in Judah, Amaziah comes to the throne. Uh, he seems to be pretty similar to his father, Joash. Uh, we do get to see he at least tries to follow hey. s- some of the law. A for effort, but yeah. still fail. So we get this thing, which says, uh, and he would, he did what was right in the, light, in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David, his father. He did in all things as Joash, his father, has done. So basically he's, you know, he's not like great, but he's trying, you know, he's giving it a go. Uh, but the high places were not removed. And the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. As soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down the servants 
uh, his servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers, but each man shall die for his own sin. Uh, so you see, I, 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 again, completely understandable. You killed the king. You don't get to walk away from that, like especially if your king is your dad. <laughs> so true. Uh, but he, and again, this is ver- this would have been very common. You would to make an example of people who did this. You would wipe out their families. Like you would completely just erase their lines. He doesn't do that. He leaves. He just kills the men who did. Um, who killed the king? He does mm-hmm. not go after their family. So good for good for Amaziah here. He's actually you know he he read the law at least once and he's like, hey, I remember. We're not that one to, thing. We're not supposed to do that. So good deal. Uh, we also see that Israel and Judah do battle, and Joash, the king of Israel, uh, captures Amaziah. So not a great start. Uh, and that's not like that's not right at the start of his reign, but not a great not a great moment for Amaziah there. Uh, in the Chronicles passage, we get some of the victories of Amaziah, but we also see that he went to war with Edom, and then when he comes back from Edom, Aaron, what does he do? He brings some of the gods with him. He's oh, like, oh wait. man, these guys are these guys are awesome, or these gods are awesome. We should worship them too. It's like, what? Why? <laughs> so just to cover our bases. Oh my gosh! And so that's why. And so we also learned that that's why um, God gives Joash victory over Amaziah because Amaziah had drifted away in that moment. Uh, jumping back into Kings, we see that Joash, the king of Israel, dies, and Jeroboam the second takes the throne again with all of the kings of Israel and Judah that have the same names. Jeroboam is the only one who gets the title of the second because the rest of them are kings of different nations. So there you go. It's all confusing. It is true. Uh, And then Jeroboam is, I put, he's the classic example of a good king in the history books, but a bad one in the Bible. Uh, And so I'll read this passage here and you'll kind of see what I mean. Uh, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of, uh, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Hey. Uh, wow, he's going to come up in like a couple minutes, uh, who was from gath Uh For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So Jeroboam, not following the Lord, does what was evil in in the sight of Yahweh is what it says. But again, if you're opening up a history book, he basically reconquers all of the land that Mm -hmm. Israel had lost to Syria. And Israel is never more prosperous than it is under Jeroboam II. It's not going to last very long, but his reign in particular is a long one. 41 years is a long reign for a king. That's true. And he does it from a purely worldly perspective, he does a good job. Uh, But as we'll see... He's not He's not a very good king when it comes to uh, the most important thing, which is, of course, leading his people in the worship of the one true God. So going back to Chronicles for a little bit, catching up with Amaziah, we find out that he is the victim of a coup and he flees to Lachish where he is, wait for it, assassinated. Oh. Just like his dad. So apparently that runs in the family. Uh, his son, Azariah, better known as Uzziah, takes the throne. Um, I thought this was interesting. Unlike Joash, Amaziah is brought back and buried with the kings of Judah. Um, so Joash is apparently like the, what for what he did by killing the priest is so hateful that he is, and I believe he's the first king of Judah who's not buried in the tombs. I I don't remember reading this before. 
Uh, if I'm wrong, listeners, just write in and tell me I'm an idiot and I won't be offended. Don't worry. I, I think there are some kings that were buried back in Judah, but not with David. Is it? Okay. So maybe I'm misremembering that. Maybe one or two, but I don't, I mean, at yeah. this point, there's so many kings that were. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we're just trying to keep all the dots connected. Let's just be honest. We're just trying to keep track of it. Uh, but yeah, so Amaziah is buried with the kings of Judah, even though he is assassinated. So Uzziah takes the throne. Uh, jumping into kings, we are told that, oh, and this is also confusing. Uh, Azariah and Uzziah are the same king. Uh, Azariah is what he's called in Kings and Uzziah is what he's called in Chronicles and in Isaiah. Uh, we're told that Azariah was a decent king. However, Yahweh strikes him with leprosy at some point. Oh, I wonder why. Wow, that's yeah, that's weird. Okay, I wonder why that it doesn't happens. tell us why. Yeah, Kings just does this thing where it's like Joash, really good king. He did an awesome job. Amaziah, good king, did an awesome job. Uzziah, uh, good king. Uh, he had leprosy at the end. That was weird. Anyway, moving on. Like they kind of just like <laughs> like wait. So Chronicles gives us the details of okay. Well, Whew, thank you for Chronicles. What actually happens here? Uh, Uzziah starts off pretty well. Uh, you know, I shouldn't say that. Uzziah starts off really well. So he takes a ton of territory from the Philistines and he builds up the defenses of Jerusalem. He leads the people in worship of Yahweh. Like Uzziah is an all in all a good king. Uh, but unfortunately we read this and this is starting in chapter 26, verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, for the, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Uh, pause for a second there. This It is so hard to explain how terrifying this would have been. So because And I think like there's... We, we have so many things that modern medicine is able to take care of today that we don't really have to experience this very often. Although I think there is still at least one leper colony that still exists. I, I could be wrong on that. But either way, when the king sees that leprosy is appealing, appearing on his body, A, he knows he's probably going to die of this. And then B, he knows that he has to spend the rest of his life without human contact, basically, uh, because it's contagious. And yeah. so all, so this, this would have been an absolutely terrifying thing to have to realize. So it says, and Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quick, quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And, and so you can see here, Uzziah is affected. He knows what's happened here. Uh, and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord and Jotham, his son was over the King's household governing the people of the land. So yeah, that's a real bummer. Yeah. Not, not a, sad. It's kind of a theme of the last few Kings where they start off pretty well and then just take off. Like they take a big dive. Uh, Uzziah, I would say has a little bit of a better, he, he fares better than his father and grandfather, but still, you know, it, it's good, good reigns that were kind of spoiled by um, big mistakes at the end. Yeah, it's true. All right. Well, we're actually going to listen. We're going to take a break from Kings and Wait Chronicles a minute. for the rest of for the rest of my readings, and then Aaron will jump back into a little bit of it. But we're going to talk about a couple minor prophets. Uh, so first up, we have Jonah, and he's our first minor prophet of the year. So hey. Cool. Good job, Jonah. <laughs> uh, Jonah is a prophet who ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II. The only other reference we have to him, other than the book of Jonah, is that passage we just read, where it says that according to Jonah, uh, 
God, or through Jonah, God said that Israel's borders would be restored, and they are restored. So Jonah, all we know of him is that he's delivered good news at least once. Like hey. that's, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of news that you want to be delivered. And now we're going to get listen. Into... All we know of Jonah is that he delivers good news. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Oof, ugh. All right. So let's get into the book of Jonah. This is a very famous uh, story that if you if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard it before. Um, but I I also think it's it's incredibly powerful. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about it a little bit today. We're gonna go a little bit fast just because you know we don't want this episode to be three hours long. Yeah. It's, it could be really long if we. I came it to in. Be. I came in the very beginning of the podcast before we hit record when Evan so abruptly jumped in when I was clearing my voice and said to him, this is, might be a doozy. So hopefully we can crank through it pretty quickly because, I mean, we're scratching the surface here. Yeah, we'll, we'll see Game how it on. goes. All right, so in chapter one, we get Jonah's call. Jonah is a, again, Jonah's a prophet. Ooh, ooh, and God calls him to, if you ever seen the VeggieTales movie, that's what, that was for you. Nope, never seen it. Uh, and God tells him, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh and tell them that they are going to be overthrown in 40 days. So basically he wants Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim his judgment. And by his, I mean God's judgment over the city. Nineveh is not the capital of Assyria at this point, but it is one of the most powerful cities in Assyria for sure. Uh, and so Jonah's, told to do this and he refuses. He does not want to do this. We're not exactly told why. We're just told that he, I don't even remember if we're told that he is afraid or not. We're just told that he doesn't go. Uh, he jumps on a ship bound for Tarshish, with, which is uh, captained by foreign sailors. There's a big storm that arises, right? So Jonah is on his way. We don't know where Tarshish is, but it seems like it's probably in Spain. It's somewhere very far away that he thinks like, okay, I'm, I'm out of here forever. Um and the sailors, there's a big storm. They know that the sailors are realizing that this storm is going to wreck their ship and they're all praying to their gods. And so they wake up Jonah, who is asleep, and he's like, hey, what God do you serve? Can you pray to your God to see if he's going to help us? And Jonah goes, oh, I serve Yahweh, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. And you can <laughs> kind of just see the sailors be like, are you kidding me right now? And so they're like- I can imagine the looks right now. Like that would have been helpful to know, Jonah, if your God made the heavens and the earth. And so Jonah's basically, he's like, I know what needs to be done. Um, throw me o- overboard into the sea. To the sailor's credit, they do not want to do this. Like, because I, I feel like in, of all the characters in Jonah, I actually think the sailors come out looking the best by the end of it um, because they- they really try to do right by Jonah. They don't, they understand that it would be wrong to do this. And so they are trying to make it back to shore as desperately as they can. I also read this really interesting thing. I got into Jonah last year, a little bit listeners. So heads up, but um, I, I think it was in the Tim Keller book or maybe it was in the commentaries. It might've been in one of the commentaries I read, um, but it was talking about, I don't think it's necessarily from God that Jonah says, throw me into the sea. I think he basically, and basically they're talking about Jonah might just still be refusing to go. Cause if Jonah said, Hey, turn the ship around, I'm, I'm disobeying my God. And he wants me to go to Nineveh. I think if they turned the ship around, the storm would have stopped, mm-hmm. but instead Jonah wants to be thrown into the sea. And so the thought there is. I feel, Cause I was reading it too, when we were reading through it. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm going the same, my mind went to the same thought that you're going to think. I think he's right trying now. to kill himself right now. I think he's trying, he's, I think this is still an act of refusal. Yes. And that the great sea, spoilers, the great sea creature that comes and swallows Jonah. Um, I think it's, it's partly God's mercy, but it is also partly like, nope, you're not getting, away, yeah. you're not getting away from doing this. And then the, the sea creature is the one that brings Jonah back to the shore. So, yeah. Cause I actually, I, I wrote this actually in my Bible when I was reading through Jonah is I remember writing if like, if, if the sense I get and he's like, yeah, it was me, just throw me in the sea, everything will be fine. It's still, it's still an act of rebellion. It's still an act of, I'm not going to do this. Like that, that's the perspective I got as I was reading through like, 
was this like him saying, I'd rather die than do what God's asking me to do? Like that, that's the, that's the play that I thought mm-hmm. I saw, I felt kind of sense going on there when I, when I was reading it. And so. this, this is open-handed, obviously. I just opened my hand. I'm going to close all, my hand on for all of No, he's kidding. Uh, but I'm digging my heels. Yeah, it's, it's an open-handed issue, but I actually, I actually do, the more I think about it, the more I think that is what's going on in this moment. So there you go. Uh, and then Jonah is swallowed by a giant sea creature. And here's the thing. It's a whale. Yeah, we just, don't, we don't know, we don't know what it Big is. Big fish. Though, so the word for, the word for fish that's used here is literally just the generic word for things that live in the ocean. So it could be like it, like a sperm whale would actually be able to make this happen. If, if you want to think of a creature that exists currently that could do this, I think a sperm whale is the only one that could actually swallow a human whole for a few days and, and make it work. Um, I also have no problem thinking that God just manifested a creature that would do this. And then, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's not a big stretch for me to believe. Um, whatever you believe, it's not like the word there is not describing one specific species of a thing. Yeah. It could literally be just thing that lives in the ocean is what that word means. Like Pinocchio. And it's also, um, and I, I thought this, I read it. This or the one, Mario movie. No, hey, Mario movie is great. <laughs> but they got swallowed by a fish too. Donkey Kong and Mario. That's, it was more of an eel, but yeah, that's true. That's true. Dude, when I was at, when I was, so we were, we were at the hospital for a few extra days and I had to stay up late with, uh, with Joel. And so there was definitely a day where like, I was so tired. I was like, I need to watch movies that are so, that are just short and they're fast. And so I watched the Mario movie and then I watched uh, Greyhound, the submarine movie because, oh dude. Okay. This is a quick 20 seconds aside. Thanks Um, listeners. Here's the thing. Number one movie's awesome because the captain of the ship is played by Tom Hanks and all he does is pray and kill Nazis. It's amazing. It's just a really good, (laughs) it's just, he's a really great character. He's a great Christian character. Um, But B, the movie doesn't mess around. It's like, here's five minutes of, Hey, I got my command and I want to marry you someday. And then the fighting starts and it doesn't end until the end of the movie. So it's, it's the perfect, like, it holds your attention. That's what I needed in that moment. I needed to stay awake at 3 a.m. And I was going to watch the Greyhound hunt down some Nazi U-boats. So it was a good time. Anyway, sorry, listeners, that has nothing to do with anything here. Um, maybe so, maybe it was a U-boat. Maybe it was a submarine. That's I'm true. Just I'm just kidding. <laughs> maybe Jonah was swallowed You did by say you're going to speak heresy, so who knows? I'm oh, just kidding. man. All right. So in chapter two, Jonah is in the belly of this creature and he writes a poetic prayer to Yahweh. It, it reads very much like a psalm. Uh, thanking him for his salvation. And so no matter what, Jonah's perspective has at least somewhat changed in this moment. Um, he almost certainly wasn't writing this in the whale. He probably was saying it, but then probably wrote it down afterwards. Where's my pen and paper? Yeah, exactly. So it's so wet. The ending line though, is that salvation belongs to the Lord yeah. or salvation belongs to Yahweh, uh, which you know is a bit rich coming from Jonah. And we'll see why <laughs> in a little bit. Uh, and so in chapter three, Jonah goes to Nineveh and he tells Nineveh that Yahweh's judgment is coming and they actually repent, which is, I mean, again, don't skip over this. <laughs> like Jonah is going into uh, this incredibly dangerous God-hating city. Mm-hmm. Like I compared it when I when I spoke on Jonah, it would be kind of the equivalent of going into the streets of Kabul in, in Afghanistan and just preaching the gospel to the Taliban. Like you would get about the same, re- you would expect to get about the same reception. Uh, but the people of Nineveh, they listen. And this this is one of the great victories of a prophet that we, that we see in scripture. Like it, I think this is every bit as incredible as Elijah's, um, the miracle of God consuming the fire and all the prophets of Baal's being put to death. Jonah going into Nineveh and having the people actually repent and listen to God is nuts. And we don't talk about it enough. Um, and the reason we don't talk about it enough is because Jonah's kind of a dingus. And that's what we get in, <laughs> in chapter four. 
And I'm just going to read chapter four. It's only 11 verses. So Jonah goes through, he's preaching that, and, and sorry, this is also really interesting. There's no offer of mercy in God's message. So all it says is, behold, Nineveh will be overthrown in 40 days. So the people of Nineveh, when they repent, they're doing so kind of hoping against hope. They're saying, please don't do this. Um, they're not even taking a deal necessarily. Uh, it is interesting that, so when the sailors thank God for the storm stopping, they actually thank Yahweh by name. When the Ninevites repent, we're not told that they say the name of the Lord, which mm. is kind of interesting. So they, they it, there is kind of hints that it's not quite a long lasting re- repentance, which we'll see because the Assyrians don't exactly become like, you know, super lovey for generations, but they do like, if you look at the historical record, there is a period where Assyria kind of chills out for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then a certain King named Sennacherib takes over and then they go on their murdering spree once again. Um, But again, that kind of springs back to the point of, I think of all the characters in the book of Jonah, the sailors are the ones that kind of come out looking the best. Uh, So in chapter four though, we get this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit last year too, so I don't need to, we don't need to go as depth as deep into it, but this is the first time that we see this as a negative. Every other time that we see the Lord is uh, slow to anger and abounding in, and abounding in love, that's a good thing. In this passage here, Jonah is angry that God is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love. Um, I was talking about how with so many of the biblical characters, the reason they fail is because they don't have an accurate understanding of who God is. Jonah is one of the only characters that fails because he understands who God is, because he know, he's like, I, I knew it. I knew if I was going to go that you were going to give them mercy, which is, it shows that Jonah has, Jonah understands who God is incredibly well, because again, yeah. there is no mention of mercy in the word from the Lord. That is just something that Jonah knows is going to happen. So Jonah's not, it's, it's just crazy to think about how Jonah has a he, he knows enough about the Lord. He has a deep enough relationship with the Lord that he knows that mercy is on the table and still is angry about it. Yeah. It's like, oh, what is, it's such a it's such a massive failing. Uh, and so Jonah says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And I love that that's all God says. He's just like, Jonah's ranting at him and God's just like, is it is it helpful for you to be this angry about everything? And then just stops talking. Uh, Jonah went out from the city, and sat on the sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and he sat it under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. So just like and I kind of like how it parallels the Ninevites are kind of hoping against hope that God will have mercy on them. Jonah is kind of hoping against hope that God will renege on that mercy and consume the city with fire once again. Like and, and it's kind of it's kind of sick that he's yeah, just like it's true. He's sitting on a hill with his popcorn and he's like, I can't wait to watch thousands of people die. This is going to be awesome. But that's what Jonah's doing. Um, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, classic east wind, and the sun (laughs) beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die for it is better to let me die than to live. So Jonah is just as heartbroken 
about this plant as he was about the fact that God is not, that God's going to show mercy to the people of Nineveh. And so God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And so Jonah just comes across like a huge baby here. Uh, And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And that's the end of the book. That's the last line. We don't hear anything from Jonah. And I also think it's weird that it ends on end cattle. Like it's not, <laughs> it's as if like the 120,000 people living in the city. And also there's a bunch of cows there too, Jonah. You want the cows to die? Is that right? But that's it. Um, and I think Jonah is just, it's a really powerful book. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when I get into the reflection portions, but it's a really powerful book about the radical call to love that God has for all of us. And I also love that it kind of, I like the ending a lot because I think it it, it leaves it up to us to what are we going to do it's with true. this? It's not, and I, I, I like to think that Jonah came around just because um, how else would we get the book? <laughs> Like there's, cause there's kind of two options of how we got the book, right? Uh, Jonah realizes what he did and he wrote down his story or he just goes back to Israel and he's angry and he's talking about what happened to him. And someone else is like, let me tell this from a different perspective that you're not seeing right now. I think, but one of those two things happened. And so I like, I like to think that much like Solomon at the end of his life, writing Ecclesiastes, I like to think that at some point Jonah kind of realized that he was in the wrong. And then he wrote down his story as a, as a warning to others, but but if he wrote it, like, but there's no, there's nothing at the end then. Like, well, I, th- I think if he, if he wrote it, I think he might have out of humility, he might've left out a repentance and also maybe it didn't come right away. Right. Like maybe this is years later, he writes it down and he's not afraid of making himself look bad. But yeah. again, who, who, but I mean, knows? yeah, cause Solomon did the same thing, but he, he had like these shades of repentance at the end of his life. Like Ecclesiastes has yeah. this guise of, uh, love Jesus, like love God and enjoy your life. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's absolutely, yeah, it's just thought provoking to see the way it ends. Yeah. You could, you could absolutely convince me very quickly that Jonah never sees the error of his ways. So that, that wouldn't, yeah, that wouldn't shock me one bit. Um, uh, all right. The next prophet we meet is Amos. Uh, we don't know much about him, but we do, what we do know is very interesting. He's a shepherd in Judah, so he's not a prophet by trade, which is something we don't think about prophets by trade, but there's a lot, right? Like when mm-hmm. in the book of Kings, we see all the times he goes, uh, bring me some of the prophets over here. Remember there's like 500 or there's like a thousand prophets that, um, what's his name? Obadiah in Israel hides away from Jezebel. So there's a bunch of prophets that we don't get named. That, that's kind of their job. Uh, but Amos is a shepherd. And he actually does his ministry in Israel. So it's kind of interesting because most of the prophets of Israel are from Israel. They're from the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos is from Judah, and he travels north across the border, which is incredibly brave uh, when we see exactly what his message is here. Um, He travels across and he does his ministry in Israel and then theoretically returns home after it's done. So pretty cool. Um, Amos, and we've talked about this last year. This is one of my favorite just kind of rug pulls of a book uh, because Amos starts off with things that most of the people of Israel would have been stoked to hear. So, you know, thus says the Lord, God's judgment is coming for 
Damascus. And, you know, the people of Israel cheer. And he's like, and Gaza. And the people of Israel cheer. So, yeah, like the Syrians, the Philistines take him out. And he he goes off against Tyre. He goes off against Edom. He goes off against Ammon. He goes off against Moab. And you you can kind of just imagine the people of Israel cheering. Like, yeah, God's judgment, day of the Lord, let's go. And then Amos goes, and that's not it, Israel. You know who else is getting judged? And like, who? And he goes, Judah! And then, the, I mean, the people would flip out. Judah, their big rival? Absolutely. They're che- they're cheering for all of that. Um, but that's like the first two chapters. Best cha- day ever. Best day ever. <laughs> um, but that's like the first two chapters. And then the rest of the book is concerned with uh, Israel. Yep. It's a, it's a talking about the judgment coming for Israel. And you kind of get the sense that the people are just like, oh, oh, okay. Um, so I, I don't know if that's the way it happened, but I will forever imagine that that's how it went down. And I'll ask Amos one day on the other side of eternity, like, Hey, was it like, were they cheering? And then, Oh, and I legit, I legit read it the same way too. It's it's as if it happens. It's a good time. Uh, So Amos goes on about how the people of Israel have rejected Yahweh and his law. Uh, Specifically, he cites that they've told their prophets not to prophesy. And then he made the Nazarites break their vows specifically to drink wine. So not great there. Uh, Chapter three, brings up the very interesting point that Israel's punishment will be more harsh because they should have known better, which is something that I think we do do need to talk about is that it's not just that the kingdom of Israel is wicked or that the kingdom of Judah uh, eventually is, becomes wicked. It's that they're wicked knowing the law of God and having God reveal himself time and time again and having God constantly save them. Like this isn't Babylon where they don't have a personal relationship with Yahweh. This is Israel and Judah who had God appear to their fathers and bring down this law that have rejected it. So of of course their punishment is going to be a little bit more harsh than the other nations around them. Uh, And it even kind of harkens back to Jonah where what what does God say about the Ninevites? He says they do not know their right from their left. It it very much makes me think of... um, of Christ on the cross when he says, uh, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Uh, Chapter four, Amos lays out that God has shown Israel both mercy and correction, and yet they will not return to him. And it ends with the, (laughs) this this line is freaky. Uh, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, is is the start of the last section of of this section. Not, not great. Um, In chapter five, we see that God invites the people or what God invites the people of Israel to do in order to avoid disaster. So this is in chapter five, verses four through nine. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and defy and defy. And it devour with none to quench it, quench it for Bethel. O you who turn who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, who made the Pleiades and Orion and turn deep darkness into the morning and the darkness and darkness the day into night, who calls for waters out of the sea and pours them out onto the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes up upon the fortress. So again. And you'll see this with most of the prophets until we get to the very end, there is an opportunity to repent and turn away. Um, Because I guess guess we we haven't really had too many of the prophets yet. And by prophets, I mean the prophetic books. We've had Elijah, who is Elijah and Elisha, who are two of the most famous prophets, but they don't write a book. Um, Most of the prophets, the early prophets have a, this is coming for you, but if you turn and seek the Lord, he he will relent. He will stop. 
Uh, and spoilers, the people do not do this. What? Uh, and then we get sort of an opposite passage. If that one's about seek the Lord and live, I, I love this one. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned hard against his wall and a serpent bit, bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And I, I love the picture of, he said, cause he's talking about the people of Israel, like, yeah, the day of the Lord, this is awesome. The day of Yahweh, this is going to be great. And he's like, no, like you, uh, the, the princess bride, I do not think that means what you think it means. Like, <laughs> and I, I think the picture is perfect of, it's like a man running away from a lion, escaping, and then immediately getting mauled by a bear or someone running away from something, going, getting into his house, leaning against the wall, and then a poisonous snake bites or a venomous snake bites him, right? Like it's, that's kind of the people talking about like, oh, we just hope the day of the Lord will come to deliver us from what's happening right now. No, you don't. It's like a body being thrown on the bones of Elisha, only to be revived when marauders come and kill him. <laughs> and then get killed by the Moabites, which <laughs> I, now I really want to know if that happened. <laughs> I'd just be so sad. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, we're laughing. Yeah, it would be, it would be Sorry. It'd be funny too. I mean, here's the thing, you know. It's comical. They, Yeah, they say that uh, time turns tragedy into comedy and a few thousand years should be more than enough time for us to, you know, laugh about a guy I hope so. killed by the Moabites. Uh, in chapter six, Amos continues on the theme of woe to those who are at ease, particularly those in Jerusalem. So there is something, he does go back to Judah for a little bit. Uh, those in Jerusalem who thinks that God's judgment will never come for them. And this is a thing, this is something we see, especially later on in Judah, where they're like, no, this is Jerusalem. This is God's city. Nothing bad is ever going to happen for, to this. We have, you know, the presence of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is here. And we'll see in Ezekiel, that's not going to stay. The, the glory of the Lord does not stay there forever. And just because it's the city of the Lord doesn't mean that they're completely uh, exempt from punishment. But it says in Amos uh, chapter six, starting verse eight, and the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial shall take him up to bring the bones out of his house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of his house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord for behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. So again, God is saying like, I can absolutely revoke my, my protection of Jerusalem, my protection of Judah, my protection of Israel. Uh, it is my prerogative to do that. And unfortunately, the people do not listen. Uh, what? Israel really doesn't listen. Judah has at least a few more generations left of being okay. And then it just kind of really spikes down into it's the ground true. after that. But, oh man, what are you going to do? Well, that that's the end of my reading this week. Uh, so we're going to, Aaron will continue on. Well, he'll finish out Amos and then get into some more of the Kings, which is fun. Uh, but before we do, we do want to take a moment to, hey, to say, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, please go ahead and do that. Uh, it really helps get the podcast out there to more people and grow the community of people listening to the podcast, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the two big platforms that a lot of people listen on. And on Apple Podcasts, it, you can not only leave a five-star review, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we will read it on the air, just like we're doing for Mercedes. Mercedes. Uh, this one, when I read Mercedes, I, I kind of laughed a bit because uh, I don't necessarily know how we got correlated to a crime podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but this is what this is what Mercedes says. It says, I was looking for a crime podcast and I found this podcast. 
So it makes me wonder if you if we have a title of an old podcast before we just start naming the books, if it was it's gotta be yeah, something. something with crime. Anyways, uh, and so you, you gave it a try. You didn't give up on it. You gave it a try, and you say you liked it. I listen to you guys when I fast because after reading the Bible for a bit, my eyes get tired, and you're not supposed to fall asleep when you fast. So this podcast has helped. So kind of like you and having to stay awake and watching those movies, I guess our podcast, our voice aren't like lullaby soothing, but they're uh, engaging. So Some people uh, watch Greyhound. Some people listen to us, apparently. Which is awesome. Thank you. Uh, and then the, you did say, aside from this podcast, this helped me uh, understand the books and chapters. I'm a pastor's kid, and I approve of this podcast because it keeps my young brain engaged, which is tricky for teens and young adults. Uh, please keep doing what you're doing. This is an amazing podcast. Uh, and then they said, thank you for mentioning study Bibles because they had no clue they existed uh, and they're a very visual person. So uh, Mercedes, I'm glad you stumbled upon our podcast and I'm glad that you left a review uh, and that you've enjoyed it so far. So thanks for listening and I hope you continue to do so. Uh, as Evan said, we are continuing the book of Amos. We're going to wrap it up. Um, and just so you know, a little, little foreshadowing here, we're coming to the end of the kingdom of Israel, just a heads up. We are short on kings of Israel at the end of this podcast, uh, which means there's not going to be very many bad kings to rank. Or is there? Anyways, Amos chapter seven, uh, it starts off this this section of my reading with a series of visions. We get a vision of locusts, which is the picture of eating all the vegetation. uh, And then Amos prays for relief, which then God grants, says that the destruction will not happen by locusts. Then we get another vision of fire, which is this devastation by fire. Uh, it's It probably foreshadowed the a ferocious, all-consuming drought, uh, but God relents from the, the punishment through fire. Then he has a plumb line. Uh, and I found this interesting uh, because there's not necessarily a word that is translated plumb line uh, in Hebrew. And so they there's not a lot of uh, clear verbiage for the word that's used here to determine what it is, but based upon ESV, based upon the CSB, uh, I loved in my CSB study, Bible says, if the CSB got it right, uh, the picture here is that there's a plumb line that would be putting out there. And I double checked, ESV calls it a plumb line too. Um, But there's a plumb line, in essence, it will reveal how crooked God's people have become. Uh, And so there's this vision of a plumb line is what it comes down to. Well, and the, the direct translation of the word is actually a triangle stringy thing. But, uh, exactly. But, you know, but it's just, we don't know what, I'm just kidding. But it sounded a little stupid when you said, no, I'm just kidding. But yeah, that's funny. Um, so there's not a direct understanding of what it was, but the, based upon scholarly uh, research and things like that, plumb line is what they're thinking is probably as close as a, as a translation as we can get. But in essence, just to show uh, how crooked God's people are and that they're, and then from this, there's no longer uh, being spared from the punishment. Uh, in the middle of these visions, we get this confrontation uh, of Amaziah the priest reporting to Jeroboam about what Amos's ministry is doing. Uh, in essence, uh, Amaziah comes to Jeroboam and says, hey, this guy is a... Uh, calling us out. He's not speaking very highly, very fondly. You should do something. Uh, so Jeroboam does. Jeroboam comes to him and calls to question his authority and his integrity. Uh, in essence, just says, you're not really a prophet we're listening, worth listening to anyways. You're in essence alluding and implying that he's a false prophet. So then we get Amos's response in chapter seven, verse 14 to 15 says, so Amos then answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman, which we already talked about because we kind of understand his origin, but nothing else beyond that. He says, and I took care of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So in essence, what Amos is doing is he's attaching his authority to God's call in his life, that he's not a a career prophet, but that he's someone who God established as a prophet, uh, which therefore uh, settles his authority as a prophet. Um, 
After this instance in, in conversation, we, we find a fourth vision here in chapter eight, uh, which talks about a fruit basket is what I call it. Uh, and it's just this picture that just as the fruit in the basket has ripened, so Israel, it's a summer fruit basket. So Israel, in essence, has peaked. Um, Israel is at its highest moment and it's all going to be downhill from here. Uh, and then in chapter eight, we also get this declaration of judgment on Israel uh, chapter nine, we'll see a fifth vision of the Lord where he's standing beside an altar uh, and that no one will escape judgment, whether they're common people or they're wealthy, and that everyone will fall um, fall under the judgment that God has as he is standing there um, by the altar there. We see this announcement of judgment. Uh, even in the midst of judgment, God says this in verse chapter nine, verse eight, he says, look, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. I just love this picture because it gives us uh, almost this moment in this grace of God's promise of his, you see his mercy in this. You see him not relenting or not going full, full uh, uh, wrath mode and just destroying everybody where he says there is going to be a remnant. Um, you then get this following of a declaration, uh, but God will then announces a restoration that is coming. Uh, and, and that's kind of where, uh, Amos ends. I almost said Jeremiah, but it's not Amos ends. That'd be crazy if we went uh, through Jeremiah already. Oh man. That's a big one too coming. But uh, so we see that with Jer- Amos at the end of Jer- Amos, he, the, the, it ends hopeful. It ends with the promise of restoration where God is not going to totally wipe out the faith off the face of the earth, his people of Israel. Uh, then we shift into Kings again. We go back to this second Kings and Chronicles kind of, uh, dance that we have done a lot so far in the last few months or last month and a half or so. Uh, second Kings 14, 28 recalls the end of Jeroboam's life. Um, chapter 15 is going to detail, uh, the Kings after Israel or after Jeroboam Kings of Israel here. Uh, we see King Zechariah, uh, who was a King for six months and he did what was evil, um, well, Aaron, that's a really short reign. It six is a, months. It is wow. a very short reign. Do you bet, know why? I bet you there's not going to be any shorter reigns immediately following. Not, him. not, not at all. No, um, because he was assassinated. Shalom, uh, he out. killed Zechariah, and he reigned from Samaria for a full month. So we go from six months to a month reign. It's wow, been, that's a really short reign, Aaron. <laughs> going from six months to a month, I bet you. I bet you there's not going to be a shorter reign immediately following it. No, not at all. No. So then you got Menahem who killed Shalom. Did what was despicably evil. He ran 10 years, by the way, um, and did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, and when I say he did something despicably evil, um, he actually did a lot more killing. Uh, he, this is where he actually, um, he took pregnant women and, and ripped the babies out of them, which is despicably evil. So that's I feel like, a fun one. Aaron, I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like a fool because I, I thought the 10, the 10 days guy was coming up next, but then I realized we talked about him last week, didn't we? <laughs> well, I was so like, now, wait a minute, now 10 all, years. Now all the listeners think that I'm an idiot. No, no, listen, you're just baby brained. So it happens. You, you can now use that as an excuse for the next 18 years of your life that you've been in a parenting fog. So thank you for uh, that grace. I got you, bro. Um, so Menaheim killed Shalom, uh, did what was despicably evil. He reigned for 10 years uh, and then continued to do what was evil. Uh, I call this one, uh, actually though, no, this is Pikahaya. Uh, he reigned for two years. Uh, he also did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Go figure, kings of Israel. Uh, then you got Pika. I like to think of him as Pikachu, but this is Pika. Pika. He was an officer of King P- Pekahiah uh, who struck down Pekahiah. He reigned in Samaria for 20 years uh, and then did what was evil in, in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and then during his reign, we're introduced to uh, a new king of Assyria in Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, I believe this is the first time we're introduced to him. Yes. 
and then who ends up conquering territories in Israel. Uh, and that's chapter 15, verses 8 to 29. So we crank through some kings, um, which are going to be pretty easy to rank at the end of the episode. Yep. So the only stay question, tuned for that. The only question is, are they bad or worse? <laughs> there you go. Uh, we jump into chapter 15, verses 6 through 7, which is where we then see the end of King Azariah of Judah. Um, we then jump into Second Chronicles 26, where we're introduced to a little prophet named Isaiah, bum, bum, bum. Um, and also the king of Uzziah's life here, also known as Azariah uh, in Second Kings there as well. Then we jump into Isaiah chapter six, and I can't jump into Isaiah chapter six without reading Isaiah chapter six. It's because so good. This is the call of the prophet, which is a major prophet, and major minor is not based upon uh, status and position. It's based upon length of book. Um, so Isaiah is a major prophet, which is a major book, a lot of chapters. And the first we read is this, verse 13, the first, or I guess the full, the full 13 verses of chapter six. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, also known as Azariah, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Then, And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. The temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe to is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken to the altar with t- from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should, should, should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. Who will go for us? A little illusion of the Trinity, FYI, but we don't need to go there today. I also have to say, Aaron, kudos for including verses 9 through 13, because a lot of the times when we recite this, it was like, who like, it's who should I send and who will go for us? Here I am. Send me. And then we cut it off. Yep. But no, the next no, part's important. You got to read the whole thing. You got to read the whole thing. It says this verse nine. It says, and he replied, go say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Really cool calling here. <laughs> Just <laughs> wait a minute. What? Uh, it says, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people and the land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Uh, And that's the call of Isaiah. That is the uh, in the midst of all of these kings, we get an incredible picture. And I just, I love the imagery. I love the vividness of it. And I think it's, I mean, as I try and think about if I'm Isaiah, what is going through my mind right there? Like, it's just incredible uh, to consider mm-hmm. what that picture would look like. No, it's it's kind of up there with Ezekiel as far as like just really being able to paint a picture mm-hmm. of like of what Isaiah is seeing. And so that's that's why it's one of the favorite passages. And it's it's a lot of people's like among their favorite passages in the Old Testament. And it's it's one of mine for sure. It's yeah. it's so so cool and so powerful. Uh and also so interesting that Isaiah's call is basically you're gonna be a prophet and no one's going to listen to you. Yep. So And you're gonna do it till everyone's gone. 
So that's fun. Uh, so then after after we read the call of Isaiah, we then shift back into Second Kings where we see Jotham, who is the son of Uzziah, uh, steps into place as king after Uzziah had died. Uh, Jotham is 25 years old. He reigns 16 years. And it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, hey. like Uzziah. Now, that's great. That's a good, that's a good thing to end on. Good job. Good job. Bud. So then we get... Sonic and Chronicles 27, it's a parallel account of Jotham becoming king. And then we're introduced to another prophet. So in this span of time, there is a ton of prophets springing, springing up. And I think that's one of the things I love as a, a kind of a side note for a second. I, that's what I've loved about the chronological reading plan so far this year is you're beginning to see a whole lot of overlap. Um, and you just see uh, all of the different instances. Now, it's been... Uh, can I be honest with you? It's been a little tedious and a pain to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But I love the fact that we're able to see pictures and understand, even though it does get a little confusing at times, we're able to see that the picture of and the history of Israel and Judah come together uh, and also fall apart. So uh, so we're introduced to Micah, Micah chapter one. Uh, he was a skilled orator. I love this. I stole this from the CSB study Bible I have. It says that he was a skilled orator and master of metaphors with a genius for wordplay and blunt, vivid imagery. Um, I could never be described that way. Um, I think, Evan, you're closer to being described that way than me. I don't know about uh, that. Well, yeah, by, than me, easily. Uh, but I just thought it was such a, a such a fun way to say it. I didn't see it. This is kind of Micah. So as you read the book and the prophet, the book of Micah, uh, you'll see a lot of this oration and metaphors and imagery. Um, it also says in the study Bible, it says, few prophets saw the future more clearly than Micah. Um, and it gives them kind of a list, a checklist item of the things that will cover, be covered in this book. Uh, it says that he prophesied the fall of Samaria. He talks about Jerusalem's destruction. He'll prophesy the Babylonian captivity and the return of it, the exile, as well as the birth of God's future ruler or Davidic ruler in Whoa. Bethlehem, AKA Jesus. Uh, and so he prophesies all of these things. Um, and in the first chapter here, as we read it, uh, you'll see that he's prophesying the coming judgment for Jerusalem. Uh, and he laments this. Jerusalem is is a place that he's from. The Jerusalem is a place that he cares about. Uh, and so he's sad about the punishment that's coming, the wrath, the judgment that's coming. Uh, it's one thing for Israel to be punished. I mean, that was part of, you'll see that part of in the first chapter. But now Judah's getting thrown in there too. Uh, and you'll see this is why Micah's lamenting. Uh, you see in verses two through five, it says, Micah says this, it says, listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Lord, look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart, apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion. All this will happen uh, sorry, sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? What is the high place in Judah? Is it Jerusalem? Uh, and so I just love, again, this is where you see even a snapshot of the vivid imagery and the word, the word play that he gives. Uh, and so you're going to, we're going to find that all th through the book of Micah. Uh, we then jump to second Kings chapter 16 verses one through nine, where we're introduced to Ahaz, who's Jotham's son, uh, who's 20 years old when he reigns and he reigns for 16 years. And he follows Israel's example, which is a really great job, Jotham, for being smart like that. Uh, and then he sacrificed his son into the fire and following pagan practices here, which Evan really loves. Um, this probably throws him in the worst category that we'll get in oh eventually. Um, 
But also during Jotham's reign, he was attacked by Raisin of Aram and then Pekah of Israel, uh, where they both teamed up to attack uh, Judah, uh, but they couldn't conquer it. They couldn't conquer him at all. Um, and then he aligns with Tiglath-Pileser, uh, and he, the king of Assyria comes up and kills Raisin uh, from Aram. Second Chronicles 28, 1 through 15 uh, gives us the first seven verses, gives us a little more detail on what actually happened with the battle between Ahaz and Rezin and Pekah. Uh, but uh, it also details uh, that captives were taken from Damascus by Rezin and then 120,000 uh, Judah uh, warriors were killed by Pekah in one day. Uh, and then we're introduced uh, to this o- this guy named Oded, who's a prophet in chapter in Second Chronicles here. Um, where Israel ended up taking captive 200,000 of their own people. Uh, and then the prophet Oded arrives in this. So this battle's going on, this battle's raging between King of Aram and Rezin, and then also the uh, northern kingdom of Judah, where they've te- teamed up to then take on Ju- uh, take on the kingdom of Judah. Uh, and so then as the Israelites are taking 200,000 people of their own captive, Oded shows up and says this, chapter 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 9 through 15. It says, a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there. He went out to meet the army, came to Samaria and said to him, look, the God of your ancestors handed them over to you because of his wrath against Judah, but you slaughtered them in a rage and that has reached heaven. Now you plan to reduce the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female to slavery. Are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Listen to me and return the captives you took from your brothers for the Lord's burning anger is on you. So he shows up and then rebukes the Israelites and then gives them an option. You can either continue in your ways and God's punishment will be poured out to you, or you can send them back. Uh, and so you see a really cool response of the Ephraimites or the Israelites where they stood, they end up staying, the leaders of the army stand in opposition to what the Israelites were doing. They end up clothing the, the captives that were naked. They, they cared for them and then brought them back to Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, and it kind of was like a little hopeful moment uh, that we see in the book uh, of Second Chronicles there as they're wrapping up that battle. We then shift into Isaiah chapter 7 through 11, uh, which is where we'll end the reading this week is in these chapters. Um, Isaiah chapter 7, it, it talks about the prophetic ministry to Ahaz specifically from Isaiah um, during this fight that was wait, raging between Pekah and Rezin and Ahaz and Tiglath. Tiglath. Uh, we're introduced to Isaiah's son. Uh, we also see Isaiah prophesies to Ahaz that Judah will not be conquered by Raisin and Pekah. Um, and then we're given what I would say this prophetic milestone uh, in chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign for the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, and this is where I, this is the prophetic milestone is what I put out there. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject this, what is bad and choose what is good, the land of two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, your father's house, such a time as has never been seen since Ephraim. Separated from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. And so Isaiah continues to proclaim what will happen on the day of judgment. Uh, but I, I think it's important to understand, like this is a uh, a moment where Isaiah and the 
well, let me go to chapter eight before I say this. Um, chapter eight of Isaiah talks about uh, the coming Assyrian invasion, followed by the explanation that the Lord is is their only refuge, that you can't have any hope in anything you do except that the Lord is the only refuge. Um, and, and we see in this moment, going back to seven and eight here, um, where Isaiah and this prophetess uh, end up having sex, uh, having intercourse, having a baby, um, and it almost becomes this immediate fulfillment of the prophecy that was given in chapter seven that I just read. Now, the milestone is in chapter 13 or really chapter 14, uh, where the Lord himself will give you signs. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son and name him Emmanuel. If you are unfamiliar with this text, it's it's an illusion that we find in the New Testament about the coming Messiah, where this prophetic word is is not just taken out of Isaiah specifically, but it also shows the foreshadowing of the Messiah in Christ. Um, but you also see kind of a dual fulfillment here. You see one where the fulfillment can be with this son that is born from between Isaiah and this prophetess, uh, but really has greater implications because the one thing about it is the prophetess isn't a virgin. Um, so it's not an entirely accurate fulfillment, but you do see an immediate fulfillment in the the baby being born and before uh before he can choose, determine what's good or bad, the the two houses fall. Uh, and so there's fulfillment there. But we also see in the New Testament, it's drawn to a foretelling of the Messiah. So it's a pretty big milestone from the prophetic literature, in my opinion. Um, but that's chapter seven, leading into verse eight. Uh, and then we get to chapter nine, where it talks about the birth of the Prince of Peace. Uh, and so I want to read chapter nine, verses two and three. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The light has dawned on those living in the land of the darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. Uh, And it's this picture where the Assyrian invasion brought a great darkness in the context of when it was spoken, uh, but they're given a reason to hope that God is still the provider protector. Uh, But in Matthew, we also see this same picture passage being used in reference to Jesus's ministry. Um, and I'm reading these because it's it's passages we're familiar with. If we've been in church long enough and heard the Christmas story and about the coming Messiah, and we've gone through a season of Advent. Uh, but what we also can see is that it wasn't just a conversation for the coming Messiah. It was also being played out in front of the Israelites in the current time. It wasn't just an illusion. It was actually also present and impactful in the moment as well. Uh, And so you see this in chapter nine, where there is this connection to the coming Messiah as we read the New Testament, but it was also applicable to the, the, to the Judah, Judahites, if you will, Uh, during the time of Isaiah, uh, we continue chapter nine and into 10, we see that it's the foretelling of pride, the pride of God's people, uh, where they see something destroyed, but then they say, you know what, we'll be able to build it back. Uh, They're putting faith and trust in their own ability to rebuild and provide. So then God proclaims to them, uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verses one through four, it says, woe to those enacting crooked statues and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and deprive the needy among the people, my people of justice so that widows can can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. What will you do on the day of judgment when devastation comes from far away? Who will you run to for help? Where will you leave your wealth? There will be nothing to do except crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. And so chapter nine and 10, we see this pride and this egotistical self-centered thinking like we will become our own saviors. We will enact our own laws. We will live according to our own means and our own ways. 
And when God obviously knows this is happening, but then he responds, it says, these are the things you're doing. You're erecting statues. You're writing oppressive laws. You're keeping the poor. You're not taking care of the poor and the needy. Uh, you're not going to give them justice. The widow is not able to be provided for. And the fatherless are left to to be used for whatever you desire. Punishment's coming. When you live to your own means, how are you going to have salvation? How are you going to find help? The best thing you can do, and this is the vivid picture for me, the, there will be nothing to do except crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain uh, because God's wrath is coming. Uh, continuing chapter 10, we then see after this moment, uh, Assyria as God's chosen instrument for punishment and wrath. Uh, so then it's the coming Assyrians and the armies that is going to be used by God as an instrument to judge his people. Uh, and God then declares a woe to them, uh, as we'll see in chapter 10, because they didn't realize that they're only an instrument for God's punishment on his people. See, Assyria, you'll see this, it implies that Assyria thinks that they're doing this according to their might, and as such, God will turn punish them, turn on them and punish them once he is done with them. Uh, we see the promises of a remnant of God's people, which is always something beautiful and something to be... Uh, I, I would say it's it's if we're going back to Psalms where it talks about Selah moments, I think when we see that God is promising a future restoration, where we see that God is relenting from a total annihilation and destruction, where there's a remnant of God's people that will still be around, it's worth taking a moment and be like, man, God, you're so faithful because you are pulling, uh, unrolling your will uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So I think there's a beautiful moment here. Uh, and then we see judgment in chapter 10. Uh, of Assyria is foretold. In chapter 11, uh, we see the foretelling of God's provided ruler, uh, and then as as well as a subsequent impact on creation. And we see this in chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. It says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside a cobra's pit, and the toddler will put his hand in a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And that's the prophetic utterance that we get in, in chapter 11 of, of Isaiah, where we're wrapping up this week's reading, and I think it's it's such an incredible, first off, it's an incredible picture um, that I think is 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 something that obviously God is alluding to. We see that this, again, this allusion to the coming Messiah, who's this new Davidic ruler, who who is the branch coming out of the shoot of Jesse, who is this, out of the stump of Jesse. Um, and we see this fulfillment and we see what's going to happen. There's going to be peace. There's going to be tranquility. There's not going to be this hostility and sin, which has ravaged the, the, the earth up to this point will no longer have a hold on it, on it. And all of creation will, will be in a place of settling in a place of peace. Uh, and, and so we see this juxtaposition, this contrast between 
God's people saying, look what we will do. We will take care of ourselves. We will provide for ourselves. We will judge the way we want to be. We want to judge. And God's saying, no, that's not going to happen. You don't judge righteously. And he's then talking and alluding to the future judge, which is his son, which will come to the earth in the future, future years. Uh, and that's kind of where we wrap up this week's reading. Uh, there is a whole ton there that we Just, got to cover. This, so. was, this was a long one. I thought, I thought it was going to go even longer than this, but I'm glad we were able to get it at least somewhat concisely talked about. So, But before we wrap up today, we do have a couple segments left for you. Uh, first up, we're going to rank some kings. And queens. All right, well, Aaron, as you alluded to, we do have one queen this week. So that's Athaliah. Um, my instinct is to put her in just like the worst category. I don't know. Do you think she's bad? Do you think she's the worst? What do you think there? I mean, I, don't, I feel like, like I said, I feel like at the end of the, at the end of the year or not the end of the year, but at the end of the Kings. Yeah. We, we're going to have to revisit everything. Some of the worst stuff, but cause I think originally that category was kind of just like you're worshiping Molech and sacrificing children. But I think there are some other ones that just for sure be put in there. So. I think that's the worst of the worst, right? Right. Uh, I would throw her in the worst. We'll okay. put her the first worst. Boom. There you go. She won't be the last one this, uh, this episode. Don't, don't you worry. All right. Next time we're going to go by nation. So we're going to do all the queens and kings of Judah, and then we're going to do the kings of Israel. Uh, next up after Athaliah is Joash. Ah, Joash. This is a hard one. Yeah. Because so Joash, if, if you don't remember, he starts off really well for most of his reign. Mm-hmm. He does really well. And then Jehoiada dies and then he kills the high priest and is eventually assassinated by his people. Um, I don't think he's the worst by far. I also don't think he can be in the good kings ranking because I think, I yeah, think his I fall is just a little bit too much. So do you think he's an okay king or is he a bad king? My gut instinct is that he's an okay king. Yeah, he's a low okay. Low okay. Do you want to put He's him, a low okay. Is he better or worse than Jehu? That's the question. Oh, man. Or Abijam. We have him after Saul as well. I'd say below Jehu. Below Jehu? All right. Let's slot him in there. And this is the reason why. Here's the deal. I'm going to say this. I had an email this week. I don't know if you saw the email. I did not. Uh, from uh, a gentleman who listens to us who did not like where I ranked, where I said we should rank Solomon. Oh. Uh, and so him and I have gone back and forth in an email. So he just, it was fun. Nate, it's, I appreciate the, the banter and the conversation. Uh, but he didn't like where I put Solomon. Higher, was he th- think Solomon should be higher or lower? Lower. Oh. Um, so, because he led all of the Israelites in, or all God's people into idol worship. That so, is a big thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I told I, my response. So I want to be clear about this. I, I, I put, who were we just ranking? <laughs> Joash. Joash. Slightly before below Jehu because Jehu had a, had a generations on the throne. He was promised generations on the throne because of what he had done. Uh, so that's why I'm putting him a little below Jehu. But uh, Nate and I went kind of emailed back and forth a bit. He's excited to see where we rank jo- Josiah, but we're not getting there yet. We'll oh, get there okay. when we get there. Uh, but so there, I put Solomon below Saul or above Saul because of the way they ended. Saul aimed in a bummer, in a bummer way. Uh, Solomon, I get the vibe that he kind of ended more up because he kind of reflected on his life right. and had some repentant moments. Anyways, so that was, it was fun. So I'd figure I'd give Nate a shout out for the email. I so. like it. I like it. Uh, okay. Amaziah, son of Joash. I feel like he's, he's like, whatever Joash is, I feel like Amaziah is like a notch above. Yeah, I would like say, like I would this. agree. All right. I so would agree. Amaziah goes right after, or I guess, do you want to go after Jehu or do you want to go before Jehu?
I, I don't know. I don't. Right, that's a tough one. This, let's slot him in right above Joash and right yeah, after let's do Jehu. That. Let's so we'll, do that. We'll, like father and son, we'll keep them together yep. there. Uh, Uzziah, I put him in good. I would say good. Okay. We're, we're on the same page Yeah, there. we're on the same page. Uh, do you think he's above Jehoshaphat and Asa? Do you think he's below Jehoshaphat? I say, I say below. Below? Okay. So it goes the good tier. Do you say? What do uh, you say? I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Because it's a hard thing, one. This thing, is a hard okay, one. The thing For a good you, king, it's a hard one. The thing with Uzziah is his fall is very personal, if that makes sense. Like I almost equate it to um, David's fall, mm -hmm. where he still leads the people well. And I don't think his fall really affects the nation as much. I mean, obviously he has to be separated for the rest of his life, which is a whole thing. And his son, uh, Jotham becomes like the prince regent. Mm -hmm. But um, but I think his one, his big flaw is not something that brought the nation down with him, I guess. So I think I, in my head, I, I, I would almost put him above Jehoshaphat and Asa. But I Where's David again? David's you, in the great. You, you have it in front of it, in front of me. Okay. But I'm I'm good either way. Okay, no, that's good. I would, yeah, that's, I'm good with you that. You want to put him top of the good? All right, let's do. Well, because if he's right there in the same vein of thought as David, I you, don't. Well, I, and I guess like I don't. Uzziah had a son he, who followed in his footsteps. David did not. Yeah, well, I will say with Uzziah though, the other thing is um, he did not take down the high places, and I think that's one of the big. That's one of the big markers that's, that's of being between a great, good and great. Yeah, yeah. is that. And that's true. That's yeah. very true. Okay. Uh, Jotham, son of Uzziah, where do we want to put him? I'd say put him with his dad. Yeah. I mean, he was, they were, they were, they were, pretty, like, they were like father, son. There's a few, yeah, there's a few <laughs> kings. It's interesting how a lot of the good kings or the, even the okay kings are kind of, uh, they follow after their fathers. And then when you get to the great kings, none of the great kings have even, true. even good sons. It's so it's, it's a whole sad. thing. It's a sad truth. Uh, and then the last king of Judah is Ahaz that we're ranking today. Where do you want to slot him at? I'm going to make the excuse of baby brain and I don't really remember too much about Ahaz right now. So I'm going to let you just fully, um, fully go for it. Oh, shoot. Now I, got, now I got to cheat. You got to cheat. You got to go back. I just got to look real quick. Just be reminded because I, I covered more kings than you did. That's true. Um, I had a lot of prophets to take my time. Oh, he's bad. He's like worst. Is it? Okay. He's, Is he he's sacrificed his son. That's what. Oh, did that's, he? That's why I had to second guess it for a second. Okay. Yeah, Ahaz, right. Jotham's son, right? Sorry, everyone. 20 years, reigned 16, followed his example, then sacrificed his son. I knew I was like, there's no, he's not good. That's why. Is he okay? But no, that's why he sacrificed his son. I blame, I blame my baby brain oh, for man. not being able but to remember I'm, that. It was funny because it was under my section. I should have remembered that. Okay. Worst. Ahaz is at the bottom of the worst yep, right now for yep. child sacrificing Molech. <laughs> All right, Israel, uh, technically we should have ranked Jehu this week, but we already ranked him Oops. last week. Oopsies. Uh, so next up, Jehu's son. This, these ones will go quicker. Uh, Jehoahaz, I'm assuming we're just going to slot him right into the bad. Yeah, bad. Do you want to, I guess the only, yeah, the only questions with these ones are if we think they Who should go be, above or below. If they, if we think they should go into the worst categories. Uh, Jehoahaz, boy, that's a hard one to spell. Okay. Uh, Joash of Israel. He's bad. Okay. I don't know about worse yet. All right. Uh, and next up, we have Jeroboam the second. He's bad. Yeah, he's bad. I would put him like. So I guess what's the threshold for worst? Worst, I, we, we're kind of just making it up as we go. So because like if we're going worst, like assassinating a previous king, like you were coming into a stretch where it's like worst, 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 right. worst, right? Um, 
and ironically, I, I, in my, I sent this to you a while ago, which is what I was looking at while you were talking. Um, but in, in the Kings of Israel, remember that page I took a picture of you mm-hmm. or I took a picture of for you. And I said, my Bible study Bible is better than yours. The CSV study Bible has a very nice layout of the um, Kings. There is, there's assassinations like crazy in Israel and none in Judah. Yeah. Judah's pretty stable. Which I was like, oh, that's, I never would have pictured that before. So, uh, so thank you for the list, CSB study Bible. Bro. Um, but so there's like assassination. So if that makes them worse or the worst Kings, um, I mean, their reign, I think, also influences a bit of how good of a king or bad of a king. Right. If you're um, if you reign for a little, a, a very short amount of time, you don't have ten any, days. Yeah, you don't have which we didn't get there yet, or we got there last week. Yeah. Um, okay, so for me, Jeroboam the second, I would put him in bad. I would put him in like middle bad though, like yeah, after Jeroboam. I agree first. with you. Okay, because yeah. I think um, he does get some credit for being at least an effective king for you know the wars and things like yeah. that. Uh, Zechariah, bad or worst. Uh, I, I would say bad. Okay. We'll just slap him in there. After that, we have Shalom. He's bad. All right. Oh, man. After that, we have Menahem. Worst. All right. There we go. Now let's get uh, better or worse than Ahaz. Ahaz sacrificed his son. Menahem sacrificed or ripped out babies. Oh, my God. This is just, uh, they're both, they're both terrible. Oh my God. Let, let's say he's worse than Ahaz because he, he did more Multiple, than just yeah, one. That's fair. All right. But I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Pekahiah. Bad. Bad. Although it says he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know if that makes him worse or what, but. Well, I think, I think that, no, that's a lot of, a lot of the bad kings. That's what they, it says. Uh, and then finally Pika or Pekka. Pikachu? Pika? <laughs> Um, he's bad. All right. Do Pikas are also, they're, uh, like a small rodent that lives up in the mountains that make a really cute noise. And it's Ashley's like, listen, after this, sorry, I just interrupted you. Oh, you're fine. I was going to say, it's Ashley's dream to like, when we go hiking to like hear a Pika and even be like, be able to see one. But when we, when we went to Yellowstone, when we were in our cabin, we heard, we heard Pikas and that was kind of cool. So there you go. Well, listeners. That wraps it up for our ranking of kings. I think this will be the longest one that we do. And after this, we're going to be... Yeah, we only have one more king in Israel. Yep. And then not very many more in Judah. And the ones we have are going to be, let me tell you listeners, a real roller coaster of, of going between some great kings and some uh, yep. some real, real bad ones. Very true. Uh, but before we wrap it up this week, let's talk about what we learned today. Okay, so for me, it's 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 Jonah. Uh, Jonah, I think, is one of the most fascinating books of the Bible, um, particularly because of the. And I said this uh, earlier in the episode, the radical love that God calls us to. And I think that sometimes that sometimes we don't recognize that radical love and radical forgiveness. Um, and the, the person I, for better or for worse, the person I always contrast with Jonah in my head is uh, St. Patrick of obviously much later. Um, but both of them are being oppressed by a foreign nation. Uh, both of them are called by God to go to that foreign nation. Uh, in Patrick's case, he was a slave in Ireland and then it goes back eventually. Uh, and then Jonah 
absolutely hates this call and refuses to refuses to go for a long time and then fails, even though he succeeds in the fact that Nineveh repents, he fails in, in his own personal character. Uh, whereas Patrick spends the rest of his life in Ireland among the people who had oppressed him. Um, so much so that I think a lot of people forget that he's British. He's not Irish, right? Um, and I think the story of Jonah is a powerful story of realizing that Jonah had every right to hate the Assyrians and mm-hmm. no one would have blamed him for that. This is not a case where the Assyrians were a bunch of good guys and Jonah's a racist, right? Um, no, the Assyrians are oppressing Israel. They're at war with Israel. Uh, they want Israel wiped off off the face of the earth. Um, the fact that Jonah does not want to extend mercy to the Assyrians is it is very, very understandable. And yet we see that it's wicked. Um, it's wicked that he does not want to extend the salvation of God that he himself received. And remember at the end of chapter two, what does he say? He says, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because Jonah clearly doesn't actually believe that. Um, he says that salvation belongs to God, but then when God actually does what he will do with his salvation, Jonah rejects it. So it's, it's just a really, it's a really convicting story. Um, and it's a great reminder for us that no matter what people have done to us, we are called to yeah. forgive. Yeah, it's really good. Um, for me, it's, I mean, it's, we're hitting, we're hitting prophets, right? I think for me, it was uh, the thing that really struck me this week was I was reading was, um, was Isaiah's call. I mean, I've, I've read that passage how many times, like I can quote, you know, the basics of it. Um, what was me? I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the angel, you know, of the Lord, the seraphim takes a hot coal and touches the lips. Um, but it, what really, like, I even wrote this in my Bible too, is, um, Am I readily available to say, here I am, send me? Um, and I think if we can look at the Isaiah context and see that there was a process to, for him to become ready um, to be sent because um, he even said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so to say the words of the Lord, you can't just have a man who's just going to, who isn't purified and and set apart and called to do that. Um, but I think the practical side of it too is is there are moments in life and there are moments in in our own perspectives where we we reject the call or we're not ready to say here I am send me uh, and it kind of falls in line a little bit with even the whole call and picture of Jonah where Jonah you know rejected the idea of going to Nineveh because of his understanding of God's grace and mercy and and forgiveness there um but with Isaiah, it was a readiness and an availability. And so um, it, it kind of has challenged me just to be thoughtful in the sense of, um, God, where am I saying no to you asking someone to go? Because I think in that moment too, like Isaiah is the one that's there. <laughs> uh, so there's not very many other people to to say, here I am. Uh, and so it's on, on Isaiah in that moment to to be responsive and willing to go. And so I think that that, uh, as I as I look about my day, as I look about um, what's the right thing to do, you know, the next right thing to do um, is, am I willing to say, here I am, let me do it. Like, let me go and represent what you ask and let me say what you say. And also the the discomfort of saying what Isaiah was told to say, like, am I willing to say yes, no matter what I'm told to do? Uh, I think that's the challenge for me as I read through and I read through Isaiah this week was just a matter of, of, of read, readily availability 
ready availability is a better way to say that, um, to God's call and to go when he says to go and where he says to go. So that, w- that was my, what would be my takeaway for this week. Love it. Well, and that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. We're just two dads on a podcast now, bro. We can say that. Happy, happy dadhood, Evan. Happy uh, Father's Day. Is today's Father's Day? It's Father. Oh my goodness. How did I miss that? Boom. What a perfect time. Happy Father's Day. Uh, And thanks for listening.